three, two, one, and we're live. Welcome to another episode of Hot Coffee Consulting, The Roundup. I'm joined again uh, by Matt Taylor, and we're going to be taking you through uh, the latest news, press, articles around data and technology, uh, and providing our analysis on uh, three or four key stories that have come out in the past couple of weeks. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Miles. It's good to be here again. Yeah. So, look, we're going to kick off um, with uh, this story about LiveRamp. Uh, very little known at this point, but it seems uh, as though LiveRamp is going to be offering its identity graph uh, solution free of charge to the major DSP solutions in the market. Um, that, I think, is a natural build on the conversation that we were having last week uh, on the ID walls uh, and the way in which the ID ecosystem is beginning to uh, you know, manifest uh, in the market with respects to different ID consortiums and different players in the space uh, operating different models. Uh, so as I said, uh, it's a little bit speculative. Um, the ramp-up conference, uh, live ramp-up ramp conference uh, happened this week, is happening this week, uh, and this is expected to be announced as part of that. Um, we don't know a huge amount about what LiveRamp are actually uh, going to be trying to accomplish with their integration with the DSPs, although a lot of people have speculated, uh, as I said, that they'll be looking to give their solution away free of charge to those DSP solutions in an attempt uh, to try and unify the ID ecosystem and provide universality uh, in terms of having a common ID that works across both the supply side and the demand side. So a lot of people think it's a pretty smart move from LiveRamp uh, to enter into that space uh, in a fairly aggressive fashion, uh, just from a pure penetration and market coverage perspective. Uh, I've got a quote here uh, from uh, one of the uh, executives working in the demand side saying, if every request coming from my DSP from an ad exchange has the LiveRamp ID on it, and I get a free LiveRamp ID license, then that makes it much more likely to get a match for an ad buy for a customer that uses LiveRamp than anywhere else. So it should have a positive effect. So you can see there, uh, you know, at a basic level, the idea is about making sure that we get increased match rates across uh, both the buy side and the supply side, and LiveRamp are being pretty aggressive in their strategy. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think as the ID um, market grows, um, I think, you know, everyone's going to be doing their own piece within it, and um, I think for the greater good, it's going to going to make, um, yeah, everybody more accurate in terms of targeting and um, use of data. Well, what's interesting is, um, you know, clearly LiveRamp have been trying a number of different strategies with respect to their ID graph and their ID capability. Um, so have other firms uh, and other ID consortiums. It's interesting that LiveRamp may have just come to the decision, the strategic decision, to just give it away for free. It's all about penetration. It's all about market coverage. That's the ID game, right? The greater right. scale, the greater coverage, the greater match rate that you have, that's what will drive success for that kind of a capability. And so uh, commercially, it may be a good decision in the long term to just give this away completely free of cost uh, and make it the core uh, identity solution across the programmatic uh, and the open ecosystem. That, I think, uh, will be interesting to see what happens there. So moving on to the next article, we've got a great one here about the rise of second-party data, uh, which is from Adweek. I think this is starting to get a lot of traction in market at the moment, um, alongside first-party and third-party. Um, it's definitely something that marketers um, and agencies and publishers are looking to use uh, alongside existing strategies. 
think the key things here are that since GDPR, third-party players um, have had issues with transparency. So this is picking up a lot of um, traction with transparency and obviously the new e-privacy laws that are coming out. Backed up by some interesting stats here, which say there's been a 460% increase in sellers of second-party data uh, in 2018. And if we look at that from uh, second-party data usage in 2017, um, in comparison to 2018, that's a 1,200% year-on-year increase, which, which is huge. Um, and, and players out there like um, uh, DMP platforms and data providers like Lotomy um, say this alternative means of generating audience insights at scale is growing in popularity, with company leadership claiming it saw a 460%, which we've talked about already, um, and especially marketers in North America are particularly eager to adopt this means of generating insights at scale. Um, so really interesting. I think it's definitely going to be something we're seeing a lot more of um, in 2019 and moving forward. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we talk about second-party data a lot. Um, that article uh, was mostly based on an interview with my uh, good friend Jason Danny, who's uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Loadme. Obviously, they have a second-party data uh, marketplace, uh, the syndicate <coughs> solution that they promote. Um, and I think it's absolutely accurate. You know, we see issues around uh, transparency, privacy, quality control affecting the demand for third-party data. Uh, Jason's pretty clear in that article that he does still believe that third-party data will continue to be the cornerstone of uh, data-driven advertising, particularly in the programmatic ecosystem. But there is clearly a need for a more transparent, uh, a more direct solution uh, within the data ecosystem. I think that's the gap that second-party data can potentially fill. Great to see those numbers in terms of uh, growth. Obviously, you know, pretty high percentage increases. You've got to understand the base to really be able to understand what that means uh, for the market. My argument would be uh, that it's still operationally quite difficult to put in place these second-party data uh, deals and to execute against them. Uh, but I think strategically, uh, and I think in terms of the future of the data-driven advertising world, Second party data absolutely should be something that is a priority for advertisers and for agencies. Yeah, completely agree. I think it's just worth adding as well. Those huge number increases don't always reflect the amount of second party data being used. So while it's great to see that it's on the increase, I think um, in real terms we'll be seeing a lot more happening this year. And I think rightly third party players and first party um, providers should definitely be thinking about this use of data to enhance their strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I've got another one, uh, quite interesting, uh, an article that was put out in Ad Exchange, uh, uh, February 13th, Highland Math forms first data co-op of data sellers. Uh, so this is a new business, um, a fairly new business, that is focused on providing greater transparency to uh, data sellers with respect to the way in which they work with uh, their distribution partners, mainly DSPs. So if anybody's uh, familiar with uh, the supply side of the data market and understands how third-party data exchanges uh, coordinate uh, their transactions through DSPs, you'll know that it's a pretty much a black box uh, reporting solution that's provided back to the sellers in terms of uh, total aggregated impressions and total revenue that's been driven over a, over a given time period, usually uh, on a monthly basis. So data sellers have argued for a long time that they don't get a lot back from the DSPs and it's hard therefore to forecast uh, future revenue, it's hard to understand uh, their competitive landscape, it's hard to understand how they can optimize their own uh, position in market and uh, this is what Highland Math seeks to try and resolve on behalf of data sellers by providing a much better um, 
access point into the different DSP uh, solutions and distribution ports. So they're basically providing uh, much more information to third-party data sellers, not only in terms of revenue-driven impressions delivered, but also in terms of uh, share of market uh, and the way in which their segmentation and taxonomy is performing against uh, major competitors. So I think that's a positive step for the third-party data ecosystem. And I think you know the common theme across a lot of this is um, transparency uh, and getting a much better deal, not only for the buy side, but also for the supply side. I think that's often overlooked. You know, we talk about transparency, um, you know, mainly from a buy side perspective, having transparency into the way in which data is collected, how it's um, curated, how it's put forward into the different buying uh, platforms. That's obviously very important from a buy side perspective, but sellers have the rights to transparency uh, as well. And I think it's interesting to understand that they have their own concerns and their own challenges with respect to the transparency that they have uh, within their own marketplace. Yeah, I think definitely transparency is key for this. Um, alongside transparency, I think it's going to help buyers as well understand the quality of data as well. With greater transparency comes a better understanding of the quality of that data that they're actually accessing. So in um, the long term, I think we're going to start to see a lot more you know, businesses like Highland Math working closely with buyers to actually help them understand what's working and what isn't. Well, it's an interesting point because most people don't get a good view on the data market. You know, most of the day-to-day -day trading that occurs happens um, almost in isolation, in silos, uh, across different agency units, across different businesses. Uh, you know, individual traders may be working with certain data providers that they themselves for their campaigns feel work particularly well, but nobody, I think, has that aggregated view on, you know, for instance, who performs best um, uh, in terms of dollars spent in whatever it may be, socio-demographic segmentation or interest-based segmentation or B2B segmentation. I mean, the market speaks uh, and the way in which the dollars move from one data provider to the next is incredibly important. And if you can get that aggregated view from somebody like Highland Math and you can use that as part of your own PR and marketing, if you're a data provider that is seeing a growth in the share of your own market, then I think, yeah, absolutely, that's a positive step forward. Definitely, agreed. Okay. And then the final piece. So finally, um, moving away a bit from the data space and, and talking more about connected TV, we've got a great article here, which I'm sure a lot of people would have seen um, getting a lot of hype at the moment, which is about Netflix um, and rival services that are looking to compete with them. So we've got one here from eMarketer called Next on Netflix uh, Advertising. So this has been talked about a lot. And I think companies like Netflix need to look at other options to sustain their business model and grow constantly. Um, there's something here that says in 2019, Netflix announced price increases of 13% to 18%. So with that in mind, they're looking for ways to further monetize, but keep subscribers happy at the same time. Um, a stat here from uh, US-based, bear in mind, uh, says that the percentage of people who have Netflix that were surveyed um, about an ad-funded model said that, uh, based on that, they came back and 63% said they don't mind seeing ads uh, if they're paying nothing. So it's an interesting stat, but I think in the long term, will um, people's behaviour change based on what they're, you know, what they've been used to with Netflix, right? Suddenly telling people they're going to be having to, you know, see ads in exchange for free content or a reduced um, subscription fee is going to be a bitter pill to swallow, I think, potentially. Yeah. 
I mean, look, I'm not an expert in the space. You say that Netflix are, I mean, obviously under quite a lot of pressure um, from incoming streaming services, from some competitors in the space. Um, you know, a couple of the guys that you mentioned. Yeah, we've got, you know, this year, I think AT&T are potentially bringing out connected TV service. We have Viacom, we have Disney as well. What's really interesting on that front is companies like Disney are already selling their content to Netflix. Mm. So does that mean in the long run, uh, Disney will be pulling away completely from Netflix if they're bringing their own connected TV service and actually monetizing through their own platform? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That would be logical, I, I guess. Um, what's interesting for me is, and, and speaking to those statistics, just in terms of the way in which people engage with Netflix, I think there's a couple of things that just spring to mind. One is, I think it's quite interesting generally in terms of uh, you know, monetization of content. That's obviously a debate that's been uh, you know, being had within the digital online ecosystem for the past uh, several years, heightened by the, the incoming GDPR, um, where you know, publishers have had to really come to terms with new monetization strategies uh, where they may not be able to actually support ad-funded models much longer so you get the rise of paywalls and those types of things what's interesting is that obviously they're going from uh, you know completely free service into into a paid for model um, and you know that may be a unilateral decision um, either ha having a free service or a mm. paid for service mm. whereas netflix seems to be looking at this kind of uh, parallel path of saying well if you want to pay for it and you, know, you can have a subscription um, and you won't see any advertisement. If you don't want to pay for it, then you have to accept an ad-funded model. So it will be interesting to see you know, w what happens with that. I think the other thing is demographics. You know, it would mm. be interesting to see how many of those people Netflix asked um, were you know over the age of uh, eighteen. I, yeah. I assume the vast majority of them uh, would would probably fall into that camp. I think what's interesting is that if you put you know content in front of a child uh, today then they are completely um, alien to the idea of advertising, mm. right? They've, they've grown up, it's the Netflix generation, and so they're not used to seeing advertising. They don't like to have their experience interrupted. When you put a normal TV, uh, linear TV channel on and they mm. see advertising, they're like, hey, what's going on? You know, it, it's, a, it's a completely different mindset in the way in which they're engaging with content. Definitely, I think so. I think just to add the last point on this, um, talked a bit about changing people's behaviors and what they're used to. Um, there's a stat here that says Hulu have purely an ad funding model um, and it has increased its viewers or subscribers by 40% year on year um, with uh, 500 million predicted in 2020. So I think what's interesting there is if you're used to an ad funded model and you have bought into the platform and believe in it and love the content that it produces, you're probably more likely to continue paying for that and be used to ads as opposed to changing the current behavior that's in place. Yeah, absolutely. I think Netflix has done a brilliant job over the past several years of pr producing original content that actually hooks uh, people in. And so, you know, whether or not people would be willing to you know, live without Netflix and the content that they receive through Netflix on the basis of, you know, having to be exposed to advertising at this point would be quite interesting. I think, you know, in principle, it's a betrayal of the model, i.e., you know, content on demand without advertising. And so you you're definitely going to get a certain percentage of the base that just sees that as a complete betrayal of the model and that they don't want to be exposed to advertising. And that's the agreement that they had with Netflix way back when. Um, but then I think we probably have some people that are a little bit more pragmatic about the way in which they 
you know get their content and the value of that content versus uh, you know the damage uh, to the user experience that advertising ultimately delivers. Yep, definitely. Okay, perfect. Well, Great. Thanks everybody for joining this week. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time to review uh, the next round of news and articles, um, and we'll be providing our analysis. But thank you. Thanks everybody.